Welcome back to today's episode where I interview Jason Blythe. Now, the topic of the podcast was actually supposed to be about growing businesses. But as always, the one conversation led to another. And we talked about some really interesting ideas that are extremely relevant to 2019, namely about society, social media, and actually how we define success in our lives. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. And don't forget that you can access my whole back catalogue of interviews. All you need to do is search for The Gary Gun Show. So first of all, welcome to the show, Jason. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, no, I'm actually really excited about this episode. So I guess um, the first place for us to start would be if you can cast your mind back to perhaps 20 years ago uh, when you were first looking at setting up your first business, could you just describe what success was to you at that period of your life? Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I think just even going back slightly before that, I, I found out fairly early on that I didn't fit very well into the corporate world. Uh, I'd given that a try and I'd had some success, but I just didn't like the corporate structure. So that's what led me to start my own business, trying to do things my way um, with varying degrees of success. Um, you know, I tried a number of things. I don't think I ever knew specifically what I wanted to do in business, just that I wanted to work for myself and try and do it my own way. So did you find that the, the corporate structure was a bit too um, constrained for you? Yeah, I think I'd always liked the idea of trying to do things in a different way um, and to try and select the right people to work with um, and be free of the constraints that I guess large organisations need in order to work at scale, which is something you have the advantage of not having to do when you're small. Um, uh, eventually, maybe you become successful enough that you get a, into a large situation where you need to start to adopt those ways of doing things, which I always kind of imagine that if ever I got to that point, I'd get out and try something else. So yeah, I, think I like that initial process of building something. Yeah, so you feel like the you feel like the freedom of setting something up and um, getting the right people around you and and creating something new is more beneficial than the day to day running of an existing business for you personally. Yeah, I don't, and I don't, and I still don't really see myself as a businessman. I think the thing is that I like people, so you know, I've always been highly sociable. I'm fascinated by people, how they think, how they work, and so in order to do that. And to do it in a way that meant something to me, it made sense to start my own businesses. Um, I've, I mean, initially in the corporate world, I ended up in, in kind of sales roles. And that was kind of as a byproduct of investing a lot of time and effort in getting to know people, build rapport people. I guess it made me um, competent at being able to use that in a sales or commercial environment. So I had some initial success of doing that. But along the way, I realized that I don't really fit in that world. And it, and it didn't feel very meaningful because I might be able to sell things to people. But the bit I enjoyed most was the process of getting to know people mm. um, that I then, I guess, could use to my advantage in order to sell them whatever the company I was working for wanted me to sell. Yeah, <laughs> but, but had very little meaning to me. I enjoyed the process rather than the, the, the end point of selling them something. So you, you weren't really sold yourself on the product that you were selling to people as well? I mean, I don't think I've ever sold well I because I wouldn't anything that I felt particularly unethical about but at the same time not necessarily a lot of depth of meaning to what I was mm. doing it was always the process of getting to know the individual um, and I did do it in a way where I tried to at least best match their needs with whatever they come to see me about and I've sold all sorts of things um, but I guess you know, it was never like the stuff I do today where I'm actually trying to help people. And I think that's the holy grail for me to be able to do something that has meaning 
um, that allows me to meet people and help people. And, you know, if as a byproduct of that, there's some commercial success and benefits, which, you know, we have to live in the real world and pay our bills, then that's the balance I've looked for for most of my life, that I've flitted from different businesses and industries in order to maybe get to where I am today. Um, so you feel like in recent years you've added more meaning to your work? Yeah, and I think because when I was younger, although, you know, I started off from a place of wanting to help people and that's always something, you know, and be sociable and interact with other people as within whatever I did, you know, you fall into the trap sometimes um, of what is success and is success having a nice house, having a nice car, doing, you know, having the kind of material benefits that go with that. And if you, like me, were fairly successful in sales and that, you're in an environment where everybody's, you know, striving for targets, um, you know, and people are flashing around with certain things, whether it's new cars or look at my... Um, and I, I've always struggled with that as well. That was never... Money was never my God. I've never been driven by money, but I did experience financial success as a byproduct of what I was doing. And then it's easy to get used to that. Um, and then you have to maintain it or you perceive that you have to maintain it because everybody else around you... Um, is talking about focused on those things. So would you say then that initially when you first got some success in your life, you almost fell into the materialism trap? I think I must, yeah, to a degree, because, you know, once I had that money, I went and spent it on things that I perceived might make me happy. And, you know, some of those were uh, experiential things. I went and travelled and did things and visited places, and, and those are the things that probably when I reflect back actually were more meaningful without doubt but equally I bought a nice car I bought nice furniture and all those kind of things and you know the work I do today I mean you know I probably didn't um, kind of consider it in that way then but you know as humans we adapt hedonistic adaptation means whatever we've got we get used to very quickly which is why there are so many miserable multi-millionaires because mm. money in the end isn't the answer to happiness so I guess I did, yeah, I fell into the trap of, you know, buying new things and, and attaining stuff, but only to realise that very quickly you get used to that, no matter how big your house is or flash your car is, within no time at all, it's just a, a home and a car. Um, you know, I think equally, if you're in abject poverty, that's a very different, and, and I think that in today's world, um, people are always striving or there's so much media around about success, and I think I've redefined success within myself. And I think the sad bit for me is that there's so much attention around material gain. And I feel like we're all on this kind of merry-go-round in, in the society we live in in the UK that we kind of don't look at success in terms of virtues and how people are, but more in what they have. And, you know, if somebody has a particular unskilled job, uh, relatively menial earnings, but is a decent human being with great values, we don't really talk about that. And we say, oh, look at that guy or look at that lady over there that's you know a founder of a business that's got all these all these assets and, and money and, and material things and and we've got to the point I think as a society where people start to feel bad if they don't have certain things because it's not worth talking about and yet society is driven by people from all walks of life and all the functions that are needed and I think all the focus is at the top and actually a lot of the people were at the top of far higher uh achievement than I've ever uh, sort of managed will tell you when they get there that actually they're not necessarily happy and that that isn't that the material aspects of that aren't the most important things so you're saying that the capitalist society that we live in 
breeds the belief that you need the material aspects of your life to feel happy and secure. But we can buy out of that and we can actually focus more on creating values in our life, which is a better definition of success for you personally. Absolutely. And I think it's hard because the narrative that we're fed because capitalism requires it and the people at the very top that make the most out of the situation are never going to slow down. They're never going to say, well, hang on a minute, just be happy with your lot. Stop striving for success. Do you need that promotion? Would it be better to spend more time with the people you love Would it and do more meaningful things and more new experiences, but not necessarily things that cost a lot of money? Because it doesn't serve the system to give that message out. And then on top of that, we, you know, and young people in particular are exposed to social media where not only can they look at their immediate group of friends and peers they can look all over the world at people with perceived happiness through huge success and and financial gain um most of which isn't necessarily a real reflection of their true happiness um so we kind of devalued i believe that you know the simple things in life um and all the attention is on i guess like america the american dream it's possible anyone can do it and and then part of the message is that if you haven't done it, that you're, you didn't try hard enough or you didn't want it enough. And I think I have two problems with that. First of all, that's not necessarily true because genetics and environment context are far bigger impact factors than free will. This idea that because someone did it that you didn't try hard enough is, is simply not true. And then secondly, uh, not everyone wants that. And if you actually say, no, I'm happy with my lot, I don't want to be the boss, I don't want my own business, I don't want to... I just want to do my work. I'm decent, honourable, hardworking, and I've got great ethics, and I want to spend the time with my family and live a relatively simple life. I think we should applaud that rather Mm. than kind of say, well, is that all you've got or done? Because I think that's a shame. So it seems like the environment is a a big part in your happiness. I mean, you mentioned that when you used to be um, in a sales role in a corporate environment, that the environment is people buying expensive stuff and and then you have to keep up with that lifestyle. And then you also brought up social media and how we can compare ourselves to other people online that are or perceive to be more affluent. Does does the environment have a, a big effect on on how we, our happiness is, is perceived? Massively. Environment's huge. And I think for a few reasons, but environment's big because you know we're a sociable species and we want to fit in and whatever environment we've put ourselves in we need to fit into that environment and we naturally socially compare and so therefore if you're surrounded by aggressive sales animals that are flashing their new watches and cars and that morning noon and night then in order to feel that you fit in you might start to to go along with those things and but they they might not have any impact on your actual happiness in fact quite likely they won't so again if you're in that environment your most natural thing is to try and fit into it and you know again so I I guess I fell on that sword so to speak for a while because you you do you know want to be part of the group um, but I very quickly realized that actually those things don't make me happy um, and I'm more interested in people and and if people are decent treat other people well and, and have values and virtues that I admire I'm more interested in that than somebody showing me something that they've achieved financially um and often at the expense of the values and virtues that Mm. I would like to you know yeah it's interesting more of myself because we're not perfect and we make mistakes and you know so you know trying to be a better person is something I hope that most of us are trying to do all of the time 
Well, it's, it's interesting because the, the Stoics, I'm a big Stoic philosophy fan anyway, but they always made the differentiation between what's in your control and what's outside. And actually, whether you're successful externally is absolutely not in your control. But what is in your control is the, the, the virtues that you have and working towards the lens that you look at the world and how you conduct yourself. That's completely in your control. So, you know, if you're setting yourself up with a view that success is external, that's never going to work for you. It's always going to lead to an uncomfortable feeling. And I'm assuming since you've had a, a paradigm shift in the way that you view success, that you've become calmer and more relaxed as a byproduct. Definitely. And I agree. It's what you focus on. And, you know, using social media as an example, people, and I don't use it a great deal or hardly at all, to be fair, but um, I have looked from time to time. But if you look, spend all your attentional resource looking at what you perceive others to be achieving and that those things are materialistic and vacuous to some degree then you're not really putting your mind in a very good place and how many people look at people on social media and think look at these people that are having a really difficult time and a tough and that is there but it's disproportionate so I think what I do without actually looking at it in a media sense is I remember that we lived in a we live in a sort of privileged society in the UK largely speaking although there are people that should be focused on that I not do not fit into that but I certainly do and therefore um you know to focus on what I might have or haven't achieved when actually I feel very lucky and that there are you know a huge population of the world is starving and dying of disease that you know worrying about what somebody else might have and how I might get it seems like a, a thoughtless process so you you give a, a huge amount of weight to being grateful in your life to having gratitude for what you already have yeah and, and I think um and, and funnily enough, I started off um, when I grew up as a kid. You know, I lived I'm from a working class family. Um, we we didn't have a lot, but what we did have um, was community, and that's something that's lacking today. You know, all the kids in the street where I live used to play outside, and all the parents um, were the parents of everyone, and everyone kind of policed, for want of a better description, and looked after each other. And that was from small things. If you ran out of something, and you were in and out of neighbours' houses, and if your mum and dad were in the garden, someone else's parents were keeping an eye on you if you were out kicking a ball around out in the street. Um, and equally, um, nobody had sports cars and holidays to the Maldives that they were comparing each other. Everyone had a fairly simple life, but what they had was community and solidarity. And that's changed, that world's changed, you know, and there's this kind of social mobility where even people from that background have kind of gone, well, how can I trade up and, and have all these things? But at the expense... Of, of humanity in my opinion because you know there are a lot of great books on this like lost connections where people don't put in the time and effort to build those relationships and those connections uh, i mean people now how many people know all the neighbors in their street and what's going on in their lives and how they feel you know a new neighbor moves in i've seen people sit in the car and think i'll wait till they've gone in so i don't have to have a conversation mm. um and I think that's a shame, you know. I used to commute to London where I spent my entire journey talking to individuals, sometimes the same people that commuted with me and sometimes someone that had turned up the first day and now everyone's nose down or on an iPad, a phone or whatever and they're kind of, they're, they're present in the carriage but they're not present with the people that are around them and young people are, are far more um, likely to be like that. It's just a shame. So you, you feel that, connecting with people and having a part of a community is a, is a big part to play in, in our success and our general happiness. 
it's a massive part to play in our happiness for sure and you know loneliness is still a big killer and you wouldn't think in today's world that loneliness was big as it is and even young people that sit isolated in their bedrooms only communicating through social media a lot of the time can feel lonely because they're not developing the human relationships and the connections and you know people that have a meaningful friendship and that doesn't necessarily mean a life partner it can just be a fantastic friend that you've had all your life live longer there's a huge study on that through harvard and and that's because that you've got that social support you've got someone that perhaps you can unload to that understands you and we need that and yet so much of our attention and effort is about um i said to a, a friend today who works in the same area as us um that you know why are so many people spending money that they don't really have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't really know mm. and and you know that's the sad reality of a lot of people's lives these days because they're trying to keep up with the joneses trying to live up to these unrealistic expectations that they see around them and mm. instead of celebrating um the basic traits and actions that don't cost any money and champion others that have them and i feel like we're kind of a as a society on this merry-go-round that's driven by capitalism you know i'm not trying to be political but i think dan gilbert once said um he's a brilliant academic you know um you're never going to see a shopping center full of zen monks so it doesn't make commercial and capitalist sense so nobody's going to promote the idea if you don't need to renew your have the latest phone why buy a better car don't worry about that promotion just spend more time with the people you love doing meaningful things and get outdoors more which actually all of which has more chance of making you happier. Mm. That that narrative is never going to be the main narrative from the top. So one of the reasons why I, I conduct my podcast face-to-face, I get a lot of opportunities to interview people over Skype and I, I don't feel like you have the connection with people. I feel like you need to be face-to-face with someone to really soak soak in their knowledge and, and take them in. Obviously, you're, you're very good socially. Is there anything that you're aware of that you do that allows you to connect with people that perhaps you don't see other people doing? I think like anything, it's something that you learn over time. And, and if you practice, I mean, you've, I know that you've played competitive sport at a high level and, and you know, you have to practice these skills and it's no different for communicating and, and learning to be comfortable around people and, and you don't always get it right. And, and the only way you learn is to keep putting yourself in that situation more and more and invest time and effort in that. And you will learn positively and negatively things that, you know, build connections and things that might cause conflict. But actually, conflict's important. And I think that's another problem of today. Um, there's a fantastic book, Coddling the American Mind, that deals with young people today that find it very difficult to deal uh, with what they perceive as conflict and, you know, terms like microaggressions and safe spaces, which never existed in my youth, are, are born through a change in parenting styles and culture where we used to let kids free play, like, as I said earlier, where, you know, I either shot up the park or was out playing with other kids in the street. And we've now told ourselves a story that the world is so dangerous that we need to be there, monitor our kids, drop them off, police everything if they might not have a sleepover just in case that there's a dangerous situation we don't know if the parents are so all these kind of things which on percentage are very unlikely not impossible um and through doing that children didn't or the modern generation certainly in england america and canada where the studies have been done lack resilience because by being allowed to play in those situations freely there are conflicts there are disagreements sometimes 
pushing and shoving sometimes those things aren't very nice and what that does is it you develop a certain sense of resilience and how to deal and cope with difficult situations differences of opinion um and the knock-on effect is that now um young people find it not all but a, a large proportion of young people are affected um very easily by difficult situations they've never spent any time and effort learning to cope with um and then if we kind of say well you know that's you know everything is a is a problem in the sense of oh well that's bullying that's aggression that's this that's that at such a kind of basic um minimal level um we reinforce that message now equally i don't agree with bullying physically or psychologically but you know human conflicts of serious debate disagreements and that are things that you are going to experience in the world so the cotton wool story of that particular book is don't if you wrap your children up in cotton wool you're not preparing from the world that they're actually going to live in the one that you would love them to live in and and that is seen in terms of children reporting low self-esteem self-harming has gone up exponentially i think there's a correlation between that and social media because actually young people are attaching their self-esteem and self-worth through the feedback that they get through social media how many likes they get negative comments they get having a real impact on their psychology and they can feel terrible sat in their room not even with anybody about the feedback they're getting and have access to it depending on whether parents allow them to morning noon and night young Mm. people check in their status at midnight to see with their phone under their pillow to see how many likes they've got is a really unhealthy place to go so you feel like when you were growing up, you, you were exposed to a lot more conflicts, which actually, although it was difficult at the time, it, it created some coping mechanisms that when you eventually went out into the real world and, and you know, had to work on your career and various other things, you were ready for that challenge. Whereas nowadays, because there's, there's not, we're not allowing kids or we're not allowing people to experience small levels of conflict growing up, that when they go into the real world, they can't cope, which creates to, which creates anxiety. We also have the capitalist society where we're all searching for the wrong thing. And that's actually creating a situation where it's leaving a lot of people self-harming, a lot of people unhappy, and a lot of people just generally not knowing what to do with their lives. Absolutely, because not only are they striving because they're, a lot of people are focusing on material success, but they don't have the depth of coping strategies because they've never built those resources. Um, you know, I've got three children, I've got um, three sons, two of which are, you know, older now in their mid-twenties and a four-year-old. And, you know, the change in the world from my upbringing to my older children to now Presley who's four is dramatic. And, you know, I very much worry about, you know, trying to create this world where he's right and everything he does and, you know, he's, you know, this unique, it's, you know, there's a lot of celebration about that. And I'm, I'm not against that, but you also have to say you're not always right and other people have other opinions and things aren't always going to go your way. And it's really important you get, you understand that very early on because you're going to need it. So, yeah, I think there, there is those two things are having a massive effect in parallel. And, mm. you know, there's with mental health, for example, where mental health conditions are, are massively on, on on the rise over the last few years and and part of the narrative around that is that people are more able to freely talk about those things and I think there's a certain amount of truth in that because the stigma is being pushed down which is great but actually I don't think we should be naive enough to think that it's purely that because I think that the world we live in and the social media and the stuff that we're talking about with young people 
is having an impact where it's not that the same amount of young people are experiencing those things, it's more. Uh, generally, people can talk about it more. But part of the study in that same book, Coddling the American Mind, was that um, they looked at self-harming rates, which they did have data for, because, of course, you wouldn't have data for people who didn't report mental health conditions. But you did have that because there was um, kind of doctors and hospital data around those figures. And, um, you know, and I don't like quoting statistics in case I get them wrong. But certainly children, I think between the age of 11 and 13, it was girls have tripled with self-harming rates in the US. Wow. And if you look at social media access levels from the 90s onwards and you follow the curve on self-harming, those two lines run so you, up in the same direction. So you, you, think, you don't think that's just coincidence, you think they're directly related? I do, mm. and uh, it's interesting, and uh, you know, it's bad. I've got a granddaughter and a sister and, and nieces, and so, you know, although I happen to have three boys, you know, you want your, your, your boys and girls to, to both be as happy and safe as possible physically and emotionally, and um, the data around girls kind of makes sense um, because boys are more aggressive in their fallouts and, and more combative. Girls go for reputational damage. So when groups of girls attack each other, um, they do it with reputation. And of course, social media, that's a re it's, it's a vehicle that's easy for that to become the case. And, and it can be done at any time. And it's hard to get away from all the while you're engaged in it. Mm. So that's very much part of the causation of, of it being girls in particular, because boys are more likely to go about it in a more aggressive and physical way. So that you think that this is perhaps a new challenge for the next generation because I guess there's a big difference between, you know, having your reputation ruined on your local um, housing estate where there's perhaps, you know, 10 or 15 kids. Whereas now with, with social media and people generating thousands of followers, if someone is going to attack you on social media, which I guess would be a concern for most kids growing up, that, that could itself lend itself to quite a bit of anxiety just generally. It, yeah, very much so. I think, you know, there's that immediate pressure that from the word go for, for teenagers, let's say, um, that part of their social standing comes from their popularity, number of followers and engagement within social media that goes beyond that handful of friends that it used to be based on when I was growing up. And I think, you know, I'm nearly 50 and you know, the older you get, the more that old saying of, you know, if you can count your friends on one hand becomes true to you. But, you know, if you've got close meaningful friends around you of any number beyond one then you're doing well and and but at the same time there's been an obsession about how popular am I how many people like me and and that puts a lot of pressure on and, and I guess I never had it in that way I just had the handful of people I hung out with when I grew up and I mm. didn't social media wasn't a thing that it is today so I didn't have to look beyond that so it was easier for me in many respects and yes you had to go into those situations of conflict and find out who those people were um, in a face-to-face -face setting. But it also built resources and skills that I see diminishing today in today's young people. So it's, it's almost like look, conflict is, is there. You can either shy away from it or you can go through a difficult, challenging time which is outside of your comfort zone. But when you come through it, you're going to have more resources available to you to cope with the world and also, I would imagine, do a better job to help humanity as a whole. Definitely. And, you know, that. funnily enough, I mean, I've read a lot of stuff about parenting styles and, you know, as a parent, you, you know what, nearly all parents, nearly all, and I'm, you know, um, I just want the best for their kids. Uh, physically, emotionally, you're trying to do your best and, and there is no perfect map for this. 
And so everyone uh, that's trying to protect their kids, it comes from a good place. But sometimes it's misguided. And you know, I'm not saying I've never been guilty of this. I'm, you know, with my wife and I, I'm probably the one more, oh, hang on a minute, that might be a bit dangerous and whatever, maybe <laughs> yeah. because of some of the accidents, things I had as a kid. But equally... I think there's some data around kids that are more likely to get run over by a car or kids that were never allowed and trusted on the pavement to not run into the road and those that were held on to are more likely. And I don't know how true that is, but someone yeah, yeah. referenced it to me recently. It kind of makes sense because mm. you have to allow in the same way of go up the park or play with those kids and I'll let them have that heated debate and come to some sort of resolution rather than I'll run in there and pull it apart at the slightest sign of someone disagreeing with mm. someone. And it's like, you know, there is, and again, there isn't the perfect answer to that, but it's just allowing it to get to a point where it might get resolved, but not to a point where it gets aggressive and physically nasty or whatever. Like, so it's, it's kind of, yeah, allowing, allowing, yeah, exactly. It's allowing them to learn for themselves in a slightly dangerous position where you can still oversee and make sure that ultimately it's okay. In conflict with your most natural yeah, instinct, yeah, of which is to protect your child in all cases, yeah. but to prepare them for the world yeah. and the reality of the things that are going to come along. And that, that's, that's the balance, yeah. So if we can cast your mind back a bit here to, um, you know, what was, what was the first business you ever set up and that you ever owned? I'm, I'm sure there's uh, some... Some entertainment with, with wow. the different types of um, businesses yeah, that well, you've actually, had. actually, um, so the first business was um, I had a hairdressing salon. Which, okay. Uh, and I'm not a hairdresser, but I sold hair products uh, for a very large company in London. Um, and I, the West End was my patch. And I had a lot of fun because salons are very sociable environments. And um, I'd say the proportion of clientele in most of the salons I went into were, were more women than men. And one thing I did notice is, is that, and uh, I think that's changed over time, but, you know, appreciate my age in this, this bit of the story, I guess. But um, I used to sit on a barber's uh, bench waiting to pay a few quid to get in and out as quickly as possible on my way to do something. Whereas when I worked in the industry in London, um, the ladies in particular that went to those salons, it was, it was something they really looked forward to. Whereas to me, it was almost a necessary evil so that I could see. Um, and yeah, so therefore, consequently, it was a really sociable, people were going there looking forward to catching up with their hairdresser, having their hair done and feeling good about themselves. And, um, you know, funnily enough, the thing I did was open a men's studio initially that tried to appreciate those so same things, um, where it was about, let's not just get in and out, let's have a really talented hairdresser that doesn't just run clippers around your head really quickly, you get a shiatsu head massage, you know, it should be something that as a man, you relax, enjoy and come mm. out with a decent haircut rather yeah. than it's, um, and, and, and a nice experience beyond just yeah. the service of having a haircut and getting in and out as quickly as possible. So that sense of connection actually has been with you even since your first business. Because even with what I'm listening to you saying here, it was about creating a connection with your hairdresser, not just being in and out, but actually embracing that relationship. Well, it's funny, yeah, you say that. I mean, I worked with, um, I had a business partner who was a really um, brilliant hairdresser, worked at the top of the industry for top magazines. He shot with Vogue and worked with world-leading photographers on shoots with supermodels and all sorts. And he even said to me, do you know what? Um, hairdressing 60% chat, 40% ability. And uh, I mean, he was being modest because he was brilliant at what he did, but he was right in many respects because it was the social interaction and, you know, the conversations that went on in the salon between client 
and stylist or colorist or whatever. And often they were there for hours on end if they were having, you know, colors done and things like that. You know, it was it was cathartic for the individual to go in and not only come out feeling better and look good, but they could discuss all sorts of things. And so again, I was in an environment where the human connections and conversations were more important, I guess, than the actual haircut or whatever mm. the service was. So again, it's, you know, I think that some of the stylists and that I work with were like, you know, I felt like a therapist today. I remember mm. a couple of them saying that to me because I've had people talking about their marital issues and all sorts of things. So again, you know, I think as humans, we always, when we're given the opportunity, we want to talk, we want to be, you know, be able to connect with people and, and be understood and the more we disconnect from that, the less happy we're going to be. And if mm. part of that disconnection is that our focus is entirely on what we've got and how we might be judged based on that, it's a real shame. And I think there is, you know, more people I speak to now are going, okay, I, I don't need that. And I'm not going to focus my all of my efforts on that. And But I also think that there's this kind of merry-go-round that we're on. And then there is a fear, well, if I jump off, will I be isolated? Will I not be part of the group? How will I be judged? So the trick, I think, and that I'm still working on, is how you operate in the world you live in. Again, like a bit mm. like the kids that need to be prepared for that world. Unless I go off grid, um, which isn't likely or realistic with the way my life's set up with family and, and that, um, how do I best operate where I don't focus my time and effort on putting myself under pressure and not being available to spend what time I have left with the people that matter doing things I want to be doing and I, and, and getting that balance. Um, so, so it's almost like realigning your life so that it's more in tune with your values as opposed to chasing the capitalist dream. Yeah. And, you know, what do you need within reason? And so... You know, I knew a friend who sold a business and got a huge amount of money and had always said, told himself the story that when that happened, he would kind of work when he chose to not be under any financial pressure, but then bought a house for three quarters of the money, raising a load of other things and that to immediately have to service those things and be under pressure and need to go and do something else again in order to maintain that. So, yeah, do you think that could be based on an insecurity as well? I think people, it's interesting when earlier I mentioned about environment, genetics and other factors other than sort of free will being a determining factor in huge success where people go, well, this person had everything stacked against them and yet they built a multi-million pound business or became, you know, a world-class athlete, let's say, or whatever. And I think that there are certain, apart from genetics and, and genetics and environment are hugely important, but um, I think pain is a huge motivator and I've met a number of people that have become very successful and if the truth be told when others might say look how confident and you know brilliant these people are that there's just, I see and know that there's a certain amount of pain insecurity driving that need to continuously no matter how well they do that it will never be good enough and they'll never get there and that's not a comfortable thing you know and and so that's why sometimes you see these people and you go well they're a multi-millionaire or they've done this and that, but they still now they want to be a billionaire or they want to be this. And you go, well, why is that? Surely if I got to that point, I'd be like, that's it, great. I can now spend the time I have available to do what I want and be free of financial constraints and pressures to do things that I don't have to do. But there are people like that. So I think part of this, the, the uh, makeup of certain individuals is that 
those things are what drive them to that success and you can't replicate that a bit like fighters in boxing and that if you've grown up fighting for your life on the streets mm. you can't emulate that if you're a footballer and you've grown up in the slums in Buenos Aires and the only way out of that life that you can see because you haven't got an education or opportunities is to be a footballer and you happen to become one of the world's best at it but it's a strong motivator and mm. you can't kind of create that in yourself. So I think there are lots of examples um, yeah. and it doesn't always mean that that's pain because that kind of social uh, degradation that those individuals might have been in is a good motivator. Um, but then maybe because they came from those environments, some of those cases that, and that there's always that thing that I never want to go back, that they never stop. Mm. <laughs> pushing. So do, you, do you think there's a certain amount of accepting who we are? in life and, and accepting this is this is who I'm meant to be rather than trying to become something that we're not. Yeah. Um, and I think that very much that's the case. But also, if other people judged us based on the way we operated as people as opposed to the things we've achieved, then that would be a, a lot easier, a lot easier for most of us. Um, mm. Because... There's only a certain amount of room at the top. And by definition, society can't have everyone at the top or the whole thing wouldn't function. And we used to live as tribes. Mm. As the, and I know we've discussed this, where when we were in smaller groups, rather than all comparing ourselves, we worked out who was best at what mm. and that everybody needed everybody in order to exist as a kind of civilised and cooperative society. And mm. as those numbers of tribes got bigger we started to compete and fight for where we sat within that um, society. And that's moved on to a level, as I discussed today, you know, that's out of control. Mm. Well, I guess we don't, we don't see where anything that we buy comes from anymore. So we buy a TV, we don't, we don't understand how it's made. We buy food, we don't see that it's been slaughtered if we eat meat. We don't really see the process. We're, with the capitalist society, we're so busy competing that, you know, you just take everything for granted. And I guess that, that in itself creates problems as well. Yeah, it, it does, and uh, and it's really hard. It's like this kind of treadmill going round for many of us that, you know, like, how do you get off? And you're so busy trying to cope with the bills and pressures and the things that, and particularly if you set your life up in such a way where, you know, you have to maintain those things, um, that you don't have the time and attention to look round and consider all those things, whereas it was, you know, and what... It's hard to live in that way in today's world because the world is so different. But perhaps if within your own head and the way you operate with those people around you, you can try to focus on the right things and put yourself in the right situations and surround yourself with the right people who are similarly minded, you've got a chance. So, um, so let's talk about the, the values um, and virtues which, you know you experienced in, in business and obviously in life. Yeah, so... <coughs> excuse me. So I guess... Um, so if there were two people that someone was telling you about and they said that there's this, these, two, these two guys I want to tell you about, or two girls or whatever, and, and um, one of them um, works in an unskilled job and they're a really decent person and they're altruistic and they spend as much time as they can with their family and they're kind um, and grateful for the, for the things that they have in this world. And then there's this other individual who's highly successful and, um, you know, they've achieved this. These are all the things they've got. You know, they've got a great house, a fantastic car, 
blah 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 all these you know all these and I think we're drawn or you know the narrative has been oh look at that successful person you know I'd like like to know them be around them and whatever and and you know I've lived in that world where people aren't asking the question I wonder how decent they are <laughs> you know mm. I wonder how they got there and, and it seems to be less important and it was like well it's not if you get there you know how much attention do we pay to that how you get there you know were you evading tax were you a bully you know were you ruthless were you did you treat your staff well you know are not the first things that come to mind and to all you know I mean I say that I mean maybe they are to other people but I think that generally speaking that it's easy to be charmed by the successes and think less about and there are lots of cases today with very high profile individuals where now the way in which they've achieved what they've achieved you only need to look at Hollywood and whether that's yeah, yeah. directors or in fact um, you know music stars and whatever that have exploited their power and position um, but part of the guilt for me is that the communities that lived in that world alongside those people know this stuff's going on, but they're so charmed by the success and what, how they might benefit from it that they kind of seem to ignore that, uh, even when there are plenty of signs that those things are going on. And I think mm. that's at the extreme end. But mm. on a day-to-day level, do we judge people by what they've achieved and the things that we perceive that make them valuable to be around rather than the values that they actually have and the way they treat others yeah i guess it's 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 a difficult differentiator because if you take sport within a sporting arena obviously you know the the best player or the best sportsman the one that can do the best thing is is revered so if you can get a picture snapshot of that and, and put that online that's instant status right so you have kids all around the world trying to replicate it for their own personal pr which is via social media and obviously, I'm assuming that the likes and things aren't going to be around just sitting around doing nothing. So that in itself is is probably, I would imagine, aspirational as well. Because, you know, looking up to role models is obviously a good thing. But I guess you have to select the right role model, which perhaps I think maybe in 2019, the, the role models in the world need to take more responsibility to actually share the stuff that they've struggled with to help younger people actually live a better life. Yeah, and, and also the, the danger as well is that, you know, you've mentioned football or sport and, you know, there's a huge amount of young people that dream of being that and a very small amount that ever achieve it. And so it's important that, you know, um, that they focus their attention proportionately so that there's a plan B. And I, I've got a couple of friends who are ex-professional athletes and one of the hardest things they had to contend with is when they were no longer a professional athlete because their entire identity was attached to that. Um, but yes, and a role model just in terms of how well they perform on the pitch or in whatever sport they might be in versus how they conduct themselves in their private life. And of course, the trappings with that are now in particularly in football, which is, you know, the, the guys I know that play football didn't live in the world of today where the money is so, you know, <laughs> like I think it's crazy, but... You know, how do you at 20 years old, you're earning £250,000 a week? And, you know, I think a lot of 20-year-olds would struggle to yeah. live a, a, a decent, honest, meaningful life with that kind of resource. Um, you know, what message does that send out? Um, but it's, you know, how these individuals act outside of their sport is as important as how they conduct themselves on the pitch. Mm. Um, and yes, we, you know, we need to 
sort of be mindful of that. But equally, they're under huge pressure. I mean, you, you see at the end of football matches now where players, when having a conversation with their counterparts on the other team, are holding their hands in front of their mouths because in case a lip reader... Mm notices that they've said something that's sort of, I mean and I'm like that's also a danger that we become so sensitive that you know everything we say is judged and under the microscope that's that's not good either mm, um, because we all say things and it you know whether it's that you know and I think a lot of us have bias you know and I, John Barnes brilliantly came out after the Liam Neeson thing and talked about that and I was so glad he did because um you know it wasn't somebody saying, you know, I proudly said and thought this. It was someone being honest and saying, look, this is, you know, I'm ashamed almost to yeah. say that this is how I felt. And until we're honest and have that conversation, whereas if we shut everything down the minute it's got the wrong tone to it, whether that's about gender, race, whatever it might be, then we're, we're making it worse, not better, because we need to open up the conversation. It seems like there's no road to redemption, actually, at the moment, which which is pretty sad, I think. You know, people are being berated for things that they did 20 years ago. Yes, you know, they were wrong at the time. But, you know, I'm a different person to what I was a year ago. And I can't even imagine how different I will be in, in 5, 10, 20 years from now. And it seems to me like the, the, one of the issues at this point in, in life is that there is no road to redemption for people. And, and I feel like over a period of time, perhaps society will iron out the flaws with what we're seeing with social media. I mean, we're already seeing different reactions to allegations, you know, when the first allegations started coming up, people were really, celebrities were getting berated. Now, there's more of a, okay, there's been an allegation, but we've seen enough times where the allegations have been dropped, can't be proven, or, or haven't been true. So actually, I already feel like there's like a, a shift, a, a changing in the guard to how people are perceiving it. Yeah, and perhaps over time, these, with conversations like these, the issues get ironed out over time. And I, I appreciate what you say about John Barnes as well, because he's someone who's in the public eye that could have kept quiet, but didn't want to, had an opinion which is valid and came out and, and stuck up for him. Yeah, and I think that, um, so there are different levels here and I think that when people are abusing their power in some of the stuff that's gone on, whether it's in Hollywood or whatever, that's and there's evidence for, for that being the case, that, that's a very... When we're talking about people admitting that they used to think a particular way... Yeah and that that wasn't necessarily the yeah. right way, and they're honest about that. I don't think we should shut that down. That mm. We should open that up. And I attended, um, you know, I I think you know a friend of mine, Robert Livingston, who's a professor at Harvard, one of the world's leading authorities in diversity and racial bias. And, and Robert's work actually is often about the smaller percentage of people that don't think about others, whether that's race, gender, sexuality, or whatever other category, any differently from the next person. And... You know, if you went on social media and asked people, are you know, how many of them are free of that bias, you'd get 95% or a high percentage of people saying, well, I'm not, I don't think like that. Well, actually, yeah. that isn't true because there's about, the number is nearer 10% of people that mm. operate without those constraints in their mind. And we should be honest about that. And uh, I yeah. heard a fantastic talk a little while ago at a health conference where... Um, the guy who's advising eBay on diversity, who's uh, an African-American, uh, funnily enough, he's from Harvard, very brilliant guy. And he said, um, if we've got issues about, say, white male privilege within certain work environments, they're not inviting the people that we're saying that that's the case with into the discussion. How do we solve it? Mm. Again, and the, the, that his words, Rob's work and what um, John Barnes said about mm. Liam Neeson, for me, is progress because... Yeah. If we start labelling other groups in society 
uh, in the same way as we wrongly did in the past, then we just move the problem and then we create more tension mm. and hatred and, we, and the movement to try and find equality of some nature or move towards it goes backwards, not, not into the right direction. I think that's, that's something. Yeah. Uh, but you have to be careful and that's the problem because if you say something and, and people pile in on you, let's mm. say it's on social media, um, you know, now people are afraid to comment and, and mm. say, use some sort of common sense and express an yeah. opinion for fear of being judgment. And Absolutely. Fear of being judged. And maybe they need to give that opinion. And instead of people trampling all over them, say, well, hang on a minute, if you consider and thought like this, and that's yeah. how people move on and healthy debate is good. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems to me like you feel that labelling um, creates a lot of problems. The labels that we place on things as a society. Massively, because you if you start talking about groups which you know we, historically black people how can you say that you know mm. not, it's not a homogenous situation no. where you judge everybody the same there are good and bad people male female straight gay yeah. whatever right so you can't start and um and if you now start saying well men are the problem and white men are the problem then you make young boys that fit into that category feel that they're guilty of something you know whether they're a beneficiary historically is something that gets discussed but my my boy my youngest boy and 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 the other two guys but like they they have always treated people with decency and fairly and and you know i'm proud of how, of, of the way they operate and, and my little boy just wants to be friends with everyone who he's in contact with so that's the starting point so actually giving him a message that's negative about how he might be judged by others that he hasn't even met and that he can't say something for fear of judgment is only going to move things backwards. Yeah. And I don't want to see that happen. So it's difficult yeah, because it there is. are still inequalities that need to be addressed. So I'm yeah. not saying there aren't. But, no, but it, it seems... But, but don't yeah. move the problem. Yeah, it seems to me as well that, that an undertone to what you're saying is that, you know, no one's perfect. We all have biases. And to believe that we don't, have any biases is quite frankly wrong and rather than putting our opinions onto society and, and labeling people and and going after people perhaps we just turn that mirror onto ourselves and, and think you know how do I become a better person how do I become a better role model how can I develop better qualities in my life so I can influence the people in my life to make better decisions rather than going online social media and just having a pop and denigrating people we've never met don't probably don't know the full story because a lot of the a lot of the fake news and news online is headline news everyone's so busy no one's really got an opinion no one's really got time to look into that i mean some of the things i hear people discuss when i ask them what's your knowledge on that well i don't i just saw the headline and these people have got very very strong opinions on it it's like you know they're, they're vehemently arguing an opinion and they've only read a headline well i think the interesting thing about that gary is that often that comes from a good place but it it's ill thought out in the way then those people go about dealing with it because if inherently you don't want to be judged or thinking that way then when you see or hear that thing you might think well that sounds terrible and i you know but you don't know all the details and you're about to make a judgment mm. and pile in on something and, and aggressively rather than understanding it and then you maybe remove yourself from that instead of focusing on well actually that person has put their hand up and said that and you know maybe there's an opportunity to change their view, assist them with that, discuss it, yeah. and get to a better outcome that, that, that's collaborative for everyone. Yeah. Attacking 
partly out of well i feel that's the right thing to do absolutely so so with socially everyone else is doing it about he would you know cast the first stone and yeah i don't think any of us are completely free of these things and i think that's what john barnes was saying he, yeah. he's he's had thoughts and judgments and he said that based on the experiences mm. he's had so why wouldn't he think those things it's, um, it's absolutely true it's, it's interesting actually just discussing the um just you know we can all go online in, in our bedrooms in, in the middle of nowhere and we can all berate and, and, and attack people that we've never met, that we're making snap decisions about with actually no comeuppance on us. I mean, if you think back to when you were a kid, you know, you couldn't do that. And if you said something out of place in the social hierarchy of when you grew up, there were repercussions. There were repercussions. But nowadays there's not. And, and anyone can go online, set up a fake profile. They can write fake reviews about anyone. They can write fake blogs. They can make fake accusations. All of it completely unfounded, no evidence whatsoever. But the the headline reads as if this person is the worst person in the world. And I don't even think there's like there's levels. It's like when people are attacked on social media, they're either the worst person that's ever lived or they're the greatest person. There's never this in between. And that in itself is not healthy. That's polarized thinking. That's black and white. He's good. He's bad. And as we know, society's not like that. No, and yeah, it's and that's the problem with news like that. And because it's far more exciting to say someone's either evil or a saint, and yet the reality is in the middle always. And that you, you know, I've never found a saint. And maybe there are people that we might say are evil, but if you look at the circumstances, more often than not, there are a number of factors that led to that behaviour. Mm. And also, backgrounds and childhoods and whatever. But nevertheless, yeah. so yeah, it's. But again, it's this polarised view of like, right, let's all go, you know, all chips in. And it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And and all we do is <clears throat> move things backwards instead of forwards. And I think there has been, a you know, a number of successes over the years in, in terms of, you know, women's integration into the workplace since women's liberation. Um, Which try, is all great you know, progress in the world. You know, Absolutely. Um, yeah trying to deal with racial prejudice i'm not saying this is anywhere near done but i'm saying that all the as soon as we start moving this around into blaming other groups yeah. instead of that we actually turn the clock back yeah 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 and yeah. you know and we need to stop doing that because nobody benefits and we just create more tension and hatred within other groups and and that would be a shame and, mm. and i think people like john barnes and that are now coming out and saying that because it makes yeah. good sense to and he experienced you know i I'm, as you know, a Liverpool fan, and you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I saw him in his prior uh, career before Liverpool getting all sorts of abuse racially on, yeah, on yeah, the pitch, yeah. which was, you know, and isn't tolerated today. So he would probably say, from from what it used to be like, mm. that was ignorance, right? Mm. And the fans use that as a, a really sort of ignorant way of attacking a player. Yeah. If another it's player easy. had a bit of weight on them, they would have yeah. attacked their weight. So it was just yeah. about the most obvious and, uh, you know, way of attacking an individual um through ignorance right and over time that's that's shifted and we need to continue to shift in the right direction yeah absolutely agree um jace we're coming to the uh, the end of the interview um just like to ask you you know your what's the the biggest thing that you've learned in your life um from perhaps your view on success as a, as a child to nowadays what's the biggest change that you found in yourself okay so i guess time is so precious and I've already spent a great deal of it focusing my efforts on things that, on reflection, I probably would have been better served looking to put into other areas. And so I intend to spend as much of that time now working on 
on the right area, spending time with people I like, doing yeah. things that have meaning, um, trying to, you know, I'm going to continue to work because I love my work, and I, and, but I want to work in something that has meaning to me. So, yeah, I guess it's, it's doing more of that. Getting, yeah, getting back in contact with who you really are as a person rather than, you know, chasing the, the capitalist dream. Trying to fit into or please other people. There's, yeah. You know, I've, I've got a small amount of people, family, my wife, my, my children, my, my extended family, you know, trying to, trying to please them, you know, it would be a good start. Yeah. And I don't do that <laughs> you know, highly successfully all the time either. So, you know, and friends, you know, and, and just putting more value on the time having conversations listening to other people um and that's cathartic because when you're having a bad day and thinking about yourself yeah it takes there's, the there's focus plenty of people having a worse day mm. than you and remind yourself of that so you know it's it's Absolutely. a journey not a destination without <laughs> using finish on a cheesy, cheesy one. so obviously now you're you know the, the work that you're involved in um i know that you're in, in the happiness space if people wanted to find out more about the work that you're doing where would where's the website or where would they go about finding out more yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'm I'm involved with a very talented team of people on a company called My Mind Pal, and our website is mymindpal.com. Um, although you won't see a huge amount about us at this stage because we're, this is something we've been working on in the background um, at the moment, trying to work with organisations to help the mental health of their workforce, um, and that's our starting point because you know there's a huge stress on the workplace um, and mental health conditions on the rise. So we're trying to give people tools to support um, their employees, make sure their people get the mental health support that they need. And this isn't always where people are suffering a mental health condition, where where that is the case, we'll try and navigate them to the appropriate support. It's about prevention. It's about daily routines and simple things that you can do um, in order to keep your emotional well-being in check. And my hope is that we evolve from doing that in the corporate space to helping young people and that mm. we're already talking to a number of colleges about collaborative Batting approaches in. to how we can specifically help young people to be more resilient and to uh, look at the, what, what they do in a different way, to think in a more helpful way and hopefully prevent them from getting into the situations that we're helping others with. Um, and so that's an area I'm very passionate about. Yeah, so if anyone um, wants to collaborate, work with us, or if you're a company that wants to support the emotional well-being of your workforce, then then come and talk to us. Absolutely, Jason. I think I'd love to get you back on the show to talk about some of these daily rituals and routines that, that do add to happiness. So if anyone's got any questions from today's episode, then obviously you can um, just go to my YouTube channel and, and post them on there. And we're definitely going to get Jason back on the show, as I say, to talk about those. So thank you very much for coming on Thanks. today, Jason. And uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it as well. Me too. Thanks for your time, Gary. A really thought-provoking interview with Jason there. And a few things that come to mind just at the end of the interview was how, how quickly society is changing from one generation to the next. Obviously, the internet and social media having huge implications to how we live our lives, but also thinking forward to the next generation. So some really uh, thought-provoking discussion today. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you know someone that might benefit, benefit from it, then why not share it as a gift? And don't forget that you can access my whole back catalogue of interviews, all you need to do is search for The Gary Gun Show.